One of our guys that lost four limbs said the thing that had most impact on him was when one of the guys that had been injured earlier that lost all four limbs walked into the room, sat down and talked with him. So the peer visitors were both Vietnam era guys and guys that had come through our program three months, four months, a year earlier coming in and working with them. There, there's a, a knowledge shared that I would never be able to, to share with them. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel Dr. Charles Scoville to War Docs. Colonel Scoville holds a doctorate of physical therapy and serves as chief of the Department of Rehabilitation at the Walter Reed Military Medical Center. Dr. Schofield has served in many important roles in military medicine and has made a significant impact in improving amputee care. You can read his full bio at wardockspodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear some remarkable stories of how the focus of military PT evolved following 9-11 and how the increased incidence of patients with severe injuries, including upper and lower extremity amputations, led to innovation and advancement in prosthetics and rehabilitation strategies. With engaging anecdotes from his vast experience, Dr. Scoville provides thoughtful insights and lessons learned that have positively impacted military medicine and universal amputee care for the future. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon Dr. Kevin Neary. Today we're privileged to welcome retired Army physical therapist Colonel Charles R. Scoville to Wardocs. Chuck, thanks for joining us today. Quite welcome. So Dr. Scoville, how did you become interested in physical therapy and what led you to join the Army? Well, I had been at Ohio University, earned a bachelor's and master's degree in, in uh, physical education. A couple of my friends had torn their ACLs and I kind of watched how they were rehabbing and things and had done some of the adapted physical education classes and that kind of got me interested in physical therapy. So I joined the Army enlisted, so I get the GI Bill. I was assigned to a Pershing missile unit because I could type, they made me the legal clerk. So I was able to award myself a second MOS in physical therapy and attach myself to the hospital and found about the Army Baylor program, applied for that and got accepted. So tell us a little bit about that Army Baylor graduate program in physical therapy. What kind of training is specific to the military or is it pretty much the same as a physical therapy program anywhere else? Well, the military has kind of always led physical therapy practice. Prior to the early 70s, physical therapists were prescription only. So the doctors told you what to do, when to do, how long to do for the patients. After the Vietnam War, the Army had too few orthopedic surgeons. So because of the performance PTs had done in Korea and in Vietnam, they became neuromusculoskeletal evaluators, physician extenders. So the physical therapy program in the Army is set up to not only teach you all of the basic physical therapy skills, but also to teach the differential diagnosis, the evaluations, and the ability to be independent in evaluation and treatment. By contrast, between the military, September of 2019, Texas finally allowed physical therapists to treat without a physician referral. So they've been gradually going towards that across the country, but it's 
It's been a long, slow process. The Army did it much before uh, civilian side. So you had several assignments during your career uh, in Kentucky, Berlin, Germany, and the Pentagon. What was your role as a physical therapist at the Pentagon? So at the Pentagon, I worked initially in the physical therapy clinic, taking care of the staff at the Pentagon and some of the executive office staff from up on the hill and such. While I was doing that, one of my patients was tasked with revising FM 21-20, the physical fitness manual for the Army. And he started asking me questions. I was giving him input. I talked to my supervisor and he said, he's asking. So he said, yeah, keep doing that. Got to a point where he was coming down with more and more questions. And I said, I've got a patient population to take care of. About a week later, he stopped in and says, well, I'll see you at the office on Monday. I went, I've got a patient scheduled Monday. He goes, oh, someone else will be here. You're now assigned to the Surgeon General's Task Force on Fitness. So Task Force on Fitness played a major role in looking at health and wellness issues, the over 40, changing the profile system, modifying uh, a variety of the activities. And we did a cost-benefit study looking at the exercise of civilian employees while on their duty time to look at how fitness affected the cost-benefit of the work they performed. So kind of a fun assignment and a wide variety of things to do. So you also served as chief of physical therapy and director of the U.S. Army Sports Physical Therapy Residency at West Point. Tell us a little bit about that assignment and some unique aspects of that training, especially since West Point has a lot of elite athletes and you were probably involved with their sports program. So all of the cadets are athletes. They all are required to do athletic activities. Physical therapists work side by side with the doctors, the morning sick call, doing primary evaluation, taking care of the ankle sprains and knee injuries and all the back pain and various things that come about from the training and the sports they participated. We also worked with the teams. So different therapists would work with different teams. A lot of physical therapists have uh, are certified athletic trainers. So we worked alongside the athletic trainers covering the games or covering intramural sports and helped expand the role of coverage at the different events. The Orthopedic Sports Medicine Fellowship, Joint Soft Tissue Fellowship, was at West Point. And my predecessors had talked about doing a brief rotation for therapists from other clinics to come in and spend a month or two at Walter Reed to get that aspect of training. I was kind of fortunate at the right there at the right time. I looked at developing that into a full fellowship program. As with all Army things, the, the hospital couldn't request to do a new activity, and certain general's office wasn't going to task them with a new activity. So I was hitting a roadblock in how do we get this program going. Fortunately, one of the colonels I worked with while I was in the certain general's task force on fitness got assigned to West Point as one of the administrators. He goes, oh, we can take care of that, and kind of got the program started and run. It, it became one of the first Sports medicine was the first sports medicine fellowship program in physical therapy accredited by the American Physical Therapy Association. So did you work with any particular teams at West Point? And were there any interesting stories from those sports injuries that you had to deal with? I worked with the football team and the hockey team with John Horchek. And while we were, we'd get the patients to physical therapy and we had to develop a uh, unique approach because they had the athletic trainers they had to go to and be seen and they were required to come to physical therapy and it was have to do one or the other 
but they were required to be at both. So we worked out a timing thing where we could do that. As they progressed in their rehab, we'd do the basic rehab, get them up to the athletic level, and then the athletic trainers would take beyond that. But we did a lot of studies on their performance and such. And one of the tests we do would be like a single leg hop for distance. And remember one guy, I was down at the end of the hall, and you get ready to start a timer to see how long it took him. You go, okay, hop, and like two hops, he'd cover like 40 yards. Guy was an amazing athlete, and this was on his injured game. So you kind of let me get out of the way of him. He's about to run you over. His big guy's coming at you. So they were all very motivated to get better and, and return to, to the events. The, the sports medicine fellowship program kind of developed into uh, sports medicine on the battlefield. In a lot of the conflicts or a lot of the deployments, physical therapy was not permitted to go on deployment because they said we were uh, equipment dependent. The concept of our program was you travel with your head and your hands. You know, anything else you need, you can pick up sandbags, fill them and make weights. You can use rubber tubing. You can do whatever is expedient, but it's your head and your hands that let you perform your skills out in the field. And based on that, we were able to assign physical therapists to ranger battalions, to Delta Force, and eventually to the combat brigade teams. Interestingly, you had an assignment at the United States Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine in Natick, Massachusetts. You served as a research physical therapist. Tell us about that assignment and the projects you worked on. So I was there for just two years. First research project I did was looking at upper body fatigue and its effect on shooting performance. So we developed a task where individual had to pull a weight up the equivalent of two floors. So in a deployed environment, your load is sack is down the bottom together. If you have a rope, you pull it up. And then we looked at what their shooting performance was and how the stress on the upper body, the fatigue of the upper body affected the, their shooting performance. And there, there was some effect. We were developing the follow-on protocol to look at how long that effect lasted. So the guy pulling up wouldn't be the first guy shooting, but how long would it be before he would be as accurate as before he fatigued? The other study, again, kind of, uh, fortuitous. When I was at West Point, we studied a class of cadets for four years, starting with their first year, looking at bone health, diet, activity, what all factors led into potential for stress fractures and further problems. When I got to Natick, it was actually 10 years after we completed the study at West Point. So we were able to call a number of those individuals back to Usarium and retest them, do their bone densities, look at their overall fitness, do the questionnaires again, and compare that to the, the previous study. Again, I was there to gather all of the data, and then I, I got selected to be the uh, assistant chief of the Army Medical Specialist Corps assigned to the Surgeon General staff. So they, they pulled me away from that, and the individual that followed me stayed there for five years studying bone health based on what we had started with that initial study. So prior to the attacks on... 9-11 and subsequent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. What was the primary focus of military physical therapy? What, what were you guys looking at and expecting in, in a potential conflict? Really, prior to the conflict, doing the, uh, the role of medicine, you know, preserve the fighting strength. Our role was to take care of all the bumps, bruises, aches, pains, keep the people active, get them returned back to duty as quickly and safely as possible. We really weren't looking at amputee care. 
the amputees the military were carrying for were generally the older diabetic dysvascular patient. You didn't have a lot of young amputees. If someone lost their leg to a motorcycle accident or another trauma or tumor, they were not allowed to remain in the military. So you do the very initial care, but as soon as they were pretty much stable, they were medically boarded and, and we were not caring for them. So there wasn't a lot of that combat preparedness other than the, again, the sports medicine aspects that, that we were uh, very much involved with. Once the amputees from the global war on terror started arriving at Walter Reed, what were the challenges facing the recovery and how did the military have to adapt? Not only was physical therapy not properly prepared to take care of a large number of amputees, neither were the orthopedic surgeons and general surgeons. Immediately, the surgeon general had to get together a group of providers from civilian experts, those that had worked in the Vietnam War at the amputee centers, some of the orthopedic docs that had an interest in that. There were a couple that were following up on all of the, the Vietnam era patients still, how they were doing 10, 15, 20 years later. And we brought all those people together and started to look at how do we prepare. The hospital at Walter Reed was not really prepared for that. When I got there, the first thing we did was modify a bathroom so you could take a wheelchair in and you could bathe the patients that were that had lost both lower legs so that you could roll in. And then we started doing other modifications. We started what was called an extremity war surgery course that the orthopedic surgeons went through. And those that were going to be deployed first went through the course first. They were using saw bones and, and talking about techniques that had been used through Vietnam era. The prosthetic devices were what they had been using in the Vietnam era. There had not been significant advances since that time. So for seven years, from 2003 to 2010, you were the chief of amputee patient care services at Walter Reed. Did that position even exist before the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? And what were some of the most significant lessons learned in those early years in OEF and OIF? Well, one of the first things that we did was determine where the patients should be cared for. There was a population said. Patients be treated initially in the military, and then as soon as they were healthy enough, referred to the VA and be cared for in the VA system. So they would be close to home. General Franks and a number of other individuals that had lost limbs during Vietnam, had tremendous careers, had a lot of input, and helped us see that bringing the patients together at Walter Reed and combined facilities, keeping them together, the camaraderie would have the best impact on the service members. So it was kind of the first step was, where are you going to do it? Once we figure out where we're gonna do it, then it's looking at what do you need to do it? A lot of history in amputee care. The Army had a prosthetic research lab that started up in 1940s, 45, 46. And in 46, the military, the Army had a regulation that said those with partial disabilities and limb loss could remain on active duty. There was a need for those individuals in positions like training. They had experience that they needed. They said, well, we're going to allow them to stay on active duty. We need that, that intellectual properties that they have. We need their background to do that. So, again, very early on, we say, well, what are we going to do with the patients when they come in? What's our goal? And our goal was to get them to the highest level of function possible and to allow them to return to active duty if they would like to. We were very fortunate very early on. One of our patients, when President Bush was visiting, 
the patient said, and he said, well, what do you want to do next? And he said, I want to go back out with my troops. He was a bummy amputee, special forces guy, and said, I'm going back. And Bush said, well, we'll make sure that can happen. So that gave me the ability to, to work through the military side to say, what do we need to do regulation-wise to allow that to occur? Because you had a medical board, and by the medical board standards, you would be disqualified to remain on that. So there were changes made to that. It's learning a lot of those lessons that were learned before and bringing back the history of what had been done that allowed us to really develop the program that we had. The key to what we did was having a very cohesive team that worked together. So the prosthetist would work with the orthopedic surgeons and say, you have to do this amputation below the knee, but this is the optimal length for the new prosthetic devices that are out there. If the amputated limb was too long, you couldn't get the newer feet on it. If it was too short, you lost mechanical advantages. And there was a zone where the surgery could occur. And within that zone, there were lengths that were more optimal. And it was learning those early on. What was the optimal length below elbow? What was the optimal length below knee, above knee that best facilitated the the use of prosthetic devices? We had a, a team that had psych, physical therapy, occupational therapy, the orthopedic surgeons, nurse case managers, peer visitors, wound care team, all meeting once a week. The patients would be evaluated in clinic led by physical medicine and all the different specialties would be there and they discuss as a group what were the next steps. So individual lost both legs above the knee, initially would go into shorty prosthetics, which is basically a socket and a foot. So they were low to the ground and they could learn to walk and ambulate and condition and then it would be the team working together would decide, okay, when do we give them height and how tall will we get them? And they could you could adjust the height. So one of our guys on said on, on his driver's license when they asked height, he put variable. Because mm-hmm. he could go, he could go anywhere from four foot eight to six foot ten if he wanted by adjusting the prosthetic devices. But it was working as a team that allowed us to provide the best care for all the patients. One of our guys lost all four limbs, came in and said, my goal is to walk out of here within a year. And we, we made that happen for him. He got out and he was able to drive away. We had drivers training there and that was his goal. He had a young daughter and just didn't want to spend his time at the hospital. He had other things he wanted to do. Other patients would be there longer, multiple surgeries. Some guys had hundred or more surgeries. So it was working together, and it's that team concept, that team cohesiveness that really made the program work. So you mentioned earlier that previous to this conflict, physical therapists really didn't deploy to the war zone. But now we discovered that they had value added on the battlefield. So what kind of things were physical therapists doing downrange at this point? So. I was unfortunate in that my whole physical therapy career was during that time where physical therapists didn't deploy. When I took over amputee care, we were sending a team into Iraq, both to train the Iraqis on how to care for their own wounded and take care of ours early on there. I had volunteered to be the one to lead that, and certain generals said, you're not going. So I, I don't have firsthand knowledge of what they were doing, but primarily their roles were in treating musculoskeletal injuries, doing all the assessments, doing all the evaluations, filling in so the orthopedic surgeon that were deployed 
could be doing the surgeries. So you do the assessment, you go, this guy has this, this guy has that, do all of, all of that initial screening. And then treating things, the minor injuries, the, the knee, knee injuries, the ankle injuries, shoulder, back, that could be treated in theater, keep the service member there. One of, one of the guys I worked with when I was a very junior therapist went on the reforger, return of forces to Germany. And they sent he, a physical therapist and a uh, orthopedic surgeon forward and looked at, as they assessed the patients, what happened to the patients? Well, physical therapy sent about 10th back for x-ray or further test. The PA sent about 30% back, the orthopedic surgeon sent about 50% back for x-rays and more tests. So the physical therapist, by being able to do the hands-on treatment of ankle sprains and stuff, was able to keep the fighting force forward at a better rate. So we kind of built on that as we built into putting therapists forward. And that was a primary role, keeping the soldiers active and healthy, looking at some of the training they were doing in theater and making changes to it where they could stop injuries by stopping certain types of training that were going on or modifying the training. Referring to your time as the chief of amputee patient care services, what research goals did you have during that time? And what were some of the major breakthroughs for amputee care? The, the immediate goal we had was to develop a, a, a database so we could track the patients and how they did and how they progressed and developing a outcomes measure that accurately reflected what the more qualified or the higher level patients do. At the time, the standard test was a get up and go. You sit in a chair, you get up, you walk a distance, we time it and see how. Yeah, Within about a week, the, the guys we had were kind of breaking the ceiling on that test. So we knew we needed to do something that tested more of the athletic aspects of, of the patients. So we had a number of studies that were done in conjunction with Miami University to develop those outcome measures. We looked at all the different aspects. So each specialty had their own thoughts and processes that went into the research. Our anesthesiologist worked well with pain management. And he developed a technique that they could use when they were bringing the patients back from theater. And initially they were saying, well, you can't do that on a plane and stuff. He kind of hit himself away on one of the flights and did the procedure on the flight back and said, I just did it. We know it works. So now we need to start doing it. There, there were a lot of things that tried to get in the way of moving forward. And we had a lot of uh, creative docs that, that found ways to improve what we were doing. The, Orthopedic surgeons developed a lot of different approaches in limb salvage, and they worked on the advances like osseointegration. So osseointegration is where you take a, people think of osseointegration, they think of dental implants. You put a metal up into the bone, you let it heal into the bone, and then you attach a tooth to it. Well, in an amputee, you put a rod into the bone with a little nub sticking out that the prosthetic device clicks onto. So the they no longer need a socket, and they get additional vibration sense. So when the foot hits the ground, they feel the vibration up through the rod into the bone, which gives them a much better sense of awareness of where they are. In prosthetics, sockets were always a issue because weight changes. And the guys come back, they, they have lost weight over the course of the initial healing. You make a socket that fits them, they start to put weight on the socket no longer fits. You get up in the morning, legs are a little swollen. Later in the day, it's a little thinner. You and I can tighten or loosen our shoes to adjust to that. The sockets don't do that. 
If the socket isn't fitting properly, you rub, you get blisters, you have skin issues and problems. If you have shrapnel in your limb and it's pushing out, the socket rubs on that and can cause issues. So socket fit was always a, a big issue and a big approach, and we did a lot for that. The prosthetic devices, when we first started, they had a microprocessor knee that was starting to be used, but the general concept in amputee care was you had to prove yourself first on a mechanical knee before you could go to a microprocessor. Like you have to learn to ride a bicycle before you can get on a motorcycle. Not necessarily true. So we started to use the microprocessor knee as the first prosthetic device and, and it worked very well. But it was still fairly old technology. I mean, it had been around for a while. So we did a research project looking at advancing the, the knee prosthesis. We brought together very early on a group of eight of our above knee amputees and said, if you're getting ready to deploy again, what do you need? And we made a list of all the things that need to do. Put out a call, had the auto box said, we'll look at that. They first said, well, that's impossible. We said, well, then you don't need to do this. I said, well, we'll figure it out. And they had a five-year project to develop this. The final aspect was it had to be waterproof. So at about two and a half years into the project, I said, this is our X2, our model that has most of the stuff, doesn't have the waterproof. A couple of our patients put it on and said, this is so much better than what we've had before we want. So I, I went to Autobach. I was just reading some of the emails back on this. I had gone to Autobach and said, we want to buy these now. You know, we want this many now. I said, we're not set up for that. We said, well, we want to buy 50 of them. In a week, come back and give me how much it's going to cost, include a warranty on it, and include the fact that when you get the X3s available, you'll swap out the X2 for the X3. And they were able to do that. So we started getting people in that prosthetic device a lot earlier than would have otherwise occurred. So we then had our allies in Britain said, well, our guys want that. They called Autobot. Autobot says, I can't sell them to you. They called me. I called Autobot and said, okay, take this many from us and, and let the Brits buy them and let them use them, which expanded the number they were making. And then they came out with the X3, which is waterproof and did everything they wanted. And that was boy, 14 years ago now. And it's still the primary need that we're using. I've asked some of the guys, what else you need to do? And they go, pretty much does what we want. There are other needs that are being developed and being worked on, power knee, where it has a motor in it that actually does the motion. So it's not your body weight that you're starting to swing the leg and such. But it was an amazing, amazing product that, that we developed through that. You were getting quite the education early on in the war, seeing a lot of stuff that you probably weren't used to seeing. But then you decided to obtain a doctorate of physical therapy. What prompted you to get that additional training and, and how did that help with amputee care? Well, over time, the professional physical therapy has continued to advance. The role as primary care providers has advanced. And kind of my professional obligation as a physical therapist to stay current with what the standards of care are and kind of why I did it. During the coursework, you, you gain insight and helps you see better the team you're leading. Kind of like you know, I graduated from the Army War College. And you go in there with one mindset, you come out of there with a totally different perspective of how you look at things and how you think about things. Little pieces, you, know, you can't say, what this piece I got here, this piece I got there, but they all integrate together to make me a better leader of, of the people I have with me. You know, 
nowhere near as smart as most people I worked with. I had some amazing docs, the prosthetists, I could never do what they did. Nurse case managers, I, I would not dare sit in their chair and try to do, do their role. They knew the people who to talk to, things, the management of pain. We had, again, a diverse group, but it was my job to keep them as a cohesive group and keep them working together and avoid infighting of, boy, we want to do it this way. And we might, it was, how do we work together? And I think the degree just gave me a little more, a uh, few more tools to use in keeping the, the group cohesive. So I know that once the patient load started to increase from the war, you were still taking care of patients, normal beneficiaries, retirees at Walter Reed, and you're just kind of running out of space to do everything that you needed to do. And I read the report to Congress that said, hey, we need to come up with something that really is dedicated to advances in amputee care. And that's where the idea of the Military Advanced Training Center came about. Tell us a little bit about that story. The first page was, it was fairly a slow trickle, but in 2001, when I was on Surgeon General staff, Joe Pink had asked me to look at the Soviet experience in Afghanistan. And there was a huge volume on what the Russians experienced when they were fighting in Afghanistan, the number of amputees they had, how tough the evacuation process was, and what they needed to do to care for them. And we used that to get kind of a ballpark estimate of how many patients we might expect. And we were we were definitely did not have the facilities to do, do that. Very early on, we got visits from congressional members to visit warriors. They looked at our facilities. And then Don Imus, Imus in the morning, came by. And he started talking about how poor the facility was on his radio show and how the equipment wasn't up to date. So when he started doing that, I got inundated with phone calls from everyone going, I've got a treadmill in my basement I want to send you. I've got an exercise bicycle I want to send you. And everyone brought attention and through Congress started saying, hey, Walter Reed needs to be taking care of these people. So it gave Congress the impetus to tell us we need to know what you need. So again, I brought together people from the VA, people that have worked in amputee care around the country, the military providers, and started looking at what we wanted. And some of the things we envisioned were like elevating parallel bars with force plates in it, that you could put stairs in that had force plates in it so you could do a gate analysis on going up and down slopes and up and down stairs. I had seen something, a very crude making of that in Germany when I was over there with Audubon looking at stuff, but it wasn't made. So we got a research proposal to have someone develop that. We looked at it at a virtual reality center with six degrees of freedom, a platform that moved up and down that had an embedded treadmill that had force plates in it, that had an environment so people would do, go through different environments. You could put in stumble protocols where you could make them stumble and look at stumble recovery, record what they were doing and modify their activity. There was a paper out of Israel. They had one kernel that was an amputee that they had a, a minor version of this that they were working on. We went to the company that did that and said, we want this kind of supercharged. So they developed that for us. We had a virtual reality firing range. So you could take someone through basic pistol range all the way through combat environments, shooting from buildings and such. Because we knew some of the guys wanted to go back to active duty and wanted to immerse them in what they were going to be going back to. Psych worked with us on some studies with that and helped the guys regain that. 
driving rehab, we had a simulator for driving rehab envisioned so that you could do in, in a driving simulator first before you go out on the road. And a driving rehab person would take them out on the road after. But when you have someone that's lost all four limbs and you're teaching them basically how to drive again, having a simulator was a nice tool to have initially. All of the things that we looked at, we were looking at returning to highest level of function. Now, for some of the guys, they didn't see themselves as, as tactical athletes. They didn't see themselves as, I want to go back and run. I want to go back and swim. I want to go back and jump out of airplanes. Their interests were more in arts and poetry and such. We had a, what was called Ford Independence and Occupational Therapy that had a full kitchen, living room, dining room, bedroom area. So you could learn all the activities of daily living. But they also did an arts program there. The drummer from Def Leppard that had lost an arm came in and did a drum circle with the guys and taught them with one arm, how do you, how do, you do this? So we tried to approach all of the different activities that we could within that facility and plan the facility so we could meet those needs. Who wound up paying for that facility? Was that, was that coming out of government uh, appropriated money? We had, as we were getting ready to build the facility, Arnold Fisher with Intrepid Fall and Heroes Fund and Fisher Foundation went to Joe Kiley and said, I want to I build a facility for you. So Joe Kiley called me and says, hey, call this guy, talk to him. He said, I'm at the airport. I don't have anything to write it down on. He goes, well, find something to write it down. I'm at the airport. I don't have anything. He goes, well, I could have emailed it to you. That would, that would work well. So Arnold Fisher said he wanted to build a facility at Walter Reed. Congress had already said appropriated funds in the NDAA to build the facility. So I said, Congress is going to build a facility at Walter Reed, but we need a center in San Antonio. So our official goes, okay, in three days, meet me at the airport. We'll fly down to San Antonio. So I called General Fox down here and said, we're coming down. Our official did a tour and said, I'm going to put it right there. Picked his spot. And he uh, worked with the uh, Fallen Heroes Fund and uh, uh, Fisher Foundation, which does all the Fisher houses. And they built the center in San Antonio. And then we got some funding for uh, renovations out in San Diego to put a third facility out there. You served as the director of the DOD VA Extremity Trauma Amputation Center of Excellence in 2009. Tell us a little bit about that organization and your role in that. About this time, there was a decision made that because of the extent of injuries, the military needed centers of excellence in hearing, in vision, in traumatic brain injury, and in amputee care. Because I was doing amputee care, I became the de facto leader of that uh, organization. And because the patients that we had had associated injuries. You had an amputation, but you also had a brain injury, or you had an amputation and you also had a vision loss, or there was a lot of overlap. The vast majority of the patients we had would either be going to the VA in a short period of time, or they'd eventually be going to the VA when they retired. So the guys that went back to active duty, some of them were just now retiring and entering the VA system. But we need to coordinate with the VA. The VA had research funds and research capabilities. And we wanted to make sure that we were not overlapping in the research. We didn't want to both be working on a power arm because you only have so much resource and you want to make sure the resources were used best. So a lot of it was the coordination between the other centers of excellence and through the VA to make things move smoothly. The database, VA was trying to, again, we were working early on electronic medical records, I think, they're still working on them. They finally got the VA and DOD reasonably linked. 
I mean, they can, VA can now see my medical records from the Army. That's happened in the last year or two that I'm aware of. But we were working on how do you coordinate that. So we worked a lot with medical records and trying to make sure that we weren't losing patients as they transitioned. So we'd have patients and the nurse case manager said, okay, you're leaving. You're going to be going to Texas. We're going to call the VA in Texas and we're going to set up a visit for you in Texas where the VA will see you. Here's your appointed time. And then a week later, you get a call from the VA going, the patient never showed up. Okay, so you track the patient down and halfway to Texas, they decided they wanted to go to North Carolina. So they turned around and went to North Carolina. So they're then coordinating with the VA in North Carolina. But it was that ability to track the patients between the various organizations that made sure we had the continuity of care that we were providing the patients. So as they left the Army, they were still getting everything they needed. What would you say is the biggest struggle for amputees in their recovery? And, and are there unique concerns for patients who suffered upper limb versus lower limb or both? So I think as I look back on this, it, it still bothers me. I think that one of the biggest concerns among the amputees is what they share with, with other service members returning. And that's dealing with the shared experience of combat, the loss of brothers in arms, issues that have led them to suicide. Now, with the amputee population, the first four years, we had very few suicides. We've now recently had guys that are 10, 12 years out from their injury that are, are, are committing suicide. So somewhere there's there's part of that struggle that I, everything we did, we still missed something. I wish I could figure that out. But that's a common problem that is there. And the, with the amputee patients, it's, again, the identif- identifying their own body image. How does that make me, you know, I've lost my leg, what's my body image? Or I've lost all four limbs, what's my body image? What is it that, that makes me me? Beyond that, I think the biggest issue is probably the socket fit, weight changes. I mean, winter, summer, my weight changes five to 10 pounds. And I can let my belt out a little bit. But a socket, when you gain weight, the limb gets larger, the socket no longer fits. When you lose weight, the socket stays the same size. It does not adjust. Limbs change size and shape during the day. So that doesn't keep up. I know a couple of my guys have two or three sockets they keep in the closet and have them labeled by weight so they can they can pull out a different one. But you can't just say, hey, I need a new socket. It's not like going out buying a new pair of shoes. It takes time. You have to go in and get cast and fit, get all the adjustments made and get it aligned to get it to work properly with whatever terminal devices you're using. So that's probably the biggest issue. Upper extremity is functionality. We get researchers, we sometimes get enamored with, boy, this is a great prosthetic device. Look at all the stuff this does. You know, it's got power, it moves the hand, it moves the fingers, moves the elbow. And the guy that's actually using the prosthetic device goes, I want a simple hook. It lets me do what I want to do. And I don't need all that other fancy stuff. So some of the struggle with the patient is getting the providers to, to realize what it is they really want and to get the providers to listen to them and not try and push some, quote, advanced technology where simpler stuff works better for you. How important have you found it to have a peer program where people with similar injuries that have more experience than someone who has a new amputation, getting those two people linked to explore some of the possibilities and kind of show them where that pathway might lead. I think that's huge. 
It's one of those things we started very early. We work with the MT Coalition of America to train peer visitors. We'd have the peer visitors visit on the ward and they'd come and every Friday night, they had a Friday night dinner that was sponsored where you take the patients out, get them away from the hospital and just have them have a good time. One of the stories that, that kind of stayed with me is one of our patients lost his leg below the knee and General Franks went in to visit him and just kind of talked to him. He had a force start coming and talking with him and General Franks came in three or four times. And about the fourth visit, the patient goes, well, you just don't understand. So General Frank sat down, took his leg off and said, okay, let's talk. And it really opened up for the guy. He came in here four times. I never realized it. So I can be, I can do that. And we tried to have someone that lost two legs. You didn't want a guy that lost an arm coming in telling him or talking with him. We tried to get a guy that lost both. One of our guys that lost four limbs said the thing that had the most impact on him was when one of the guys that had been injured earlier that lost all four limbs walked into the room, sat down and talked with him. So the peer visitors were both Vietnam era guys and guys that had come through our program three months, four months, a year earlier coming in and working with them. There, there's a, a knowledge shared that I would never be able to, to share with them. They understand a lot of what's going on and why and how and ways to work around stuff that I'd never think of. So when you were at Walter Reed, I'm sure that you had a bunch of VIPs visit. Did you ever have any remarkable experiences with presidents or other movie stars? So with, with the presidents, they were there frequently. I would always be responsible for going through and making sure everything was set up properly for when they came through working with the security people. But when they were actually there, I always let my therapists, uh, my prosthetists, my docs be the ones that met with the president because they were the ones doing doing the day-to-day work, day-to-day effort. When we had different movie stars, actors, folks come in, I would be part of the tour, showing them around, explaining what we were doing. Who was your favorite star? John Stewart. John Stewart was there all the time. He and Gary Sinise was there all the time. Both were there many, many times. And Gary would come, he'd bring his band in, he'd set up a lunch outside with hot dogs and stuff for the entire hospital staff. They'd play. They would come in and spend a great deal of time. When Stevie Nicks would come in, there was always a debate of who would be with Stevie because she'd sign up to be there for an hour. And five hours later, you're going, Stevie, you've got to go. But she would spend a lot of time with each each patient. She'd bring an iPod for each patient. She'd go, this is your iPod, but you can't put any songs on it because it's full of my playlist. (laughs) So the music she'd listen to before she'd go into concert, she'd be providing. And she had a picture that she was drawing and she'd incorporate the guys into her artwork and do some amazing things with that. So what innovations occurred due to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that may not have been developed or would have taken much longer to develop? Osseointegration was when we first started, they were doing studies with sheep at the University of Utah. Our surgeons at Walter Reed developed new devices for osseointegration, designed them, said this will work better and have been using it. That's been working extremely well with our patients and they're using it more commonly now. X3 prosthetic device, as I say, at the start of the war, they were still using the technology, kind of Vietnam era and, and very slow advances. The money is not there for the 
prosthetic companies to spend a lot on research to come up with a new device when people are buying what they already have. So the number of amputees created by the war and the research funding was available to help to advance prosthetic development. Did the running blade exist before the Iraq? It, it, it did, but there have been a lot of variations. And the adaptation of that into what's called the IDEO, which is a orthotic device. So if you have limb salvage, but your foot isn't working properly, the IDEO brace was made to assist an individual with limb salvage to return to high-level activity. Alex Smith, Washington Redskins quarterback, serious injury, went back to play. He got second army designee status, treated at the military empty care center in San Antonio. They fit him with the IDEO brace, and he wore that when he was playing football. So that would not have advanced the way it did. Power knee, power foot were there, and lots of control mechanisms. So we started working with ions, which are little rice, about the size of a grain of rice. It's put in the muscle, and it's an electrode that picks up the electrical activity and gives the information to a prosthetic device to drive the, to drive the prosthetic device. So it's now muscle control. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the limb salvage versus amputation. And you mentioned that the orthopedic surgeons and general surgeons really learned a lot early in the war of you know what patients would be best served by an amputation and how to do it. But let's say the patient now is back in the United States. How do they make an informed decision of whether or not limb salvage is the best bet for them or an amputation? So a very personal decision. And we always gave the patient the time to decide. You can do an amputation two, three, four, five years after the injury. Once you've done the amputation, you can't go back and put on the, the limb and try to salvage it anymore. Look at the patient. What is it they want to do? What are the activities they're looking for? Do they want to be high level? Do they want to do a lot of activity? Or are they comfortable just kind of walking and doing activity of daily living? How important is sensation? A salvage limb has sensation in the bottom of the foot. You can feel the ground when you're hitting. The prosthetic device doesn't. That affects balance, affects coordination some. How much pain are they having? What's the character of the pain? With an amputation, you have the possibility of having phantom limb pain, which is feeling like the leg is still there, or so the phantom limb sensation or phantom limb pain. So you can feel the pain even though the limb is there. So you either feel the limb there, not there. Okay, that's not really going to interfere a lot with function. Phantom limb pain will do that. And phantom limb pain is much harder to deal with because you no longer can do anything at the site of pain because that site isn't there. It's the nerve pathway further up or in the brain where the pain is now being perceived. So giving them the time to decide and having them look at what it is they want to do, what they want to accomplish, and that kind of leads to where they go in making that decision. What do you think the American public should know about amputee care and rehabilitation that they may not know? Amputee care is pretty much the same as sports medicine care. We treat the guys like a knee injury, like an ankle injury. They do the same skills, same activities for a lot of their rehab that any other athlete would do. And people think of it where it's this really complicated, fancy stuff. It's still real basic rehabilitation. There's no rocket science to it. It's working with the patient, working with their goals, and modifying the way they're performing tasks to best accommodate the injuries they have, the devices they have to use. So when the history books are written about this time period, and people are reading them 50 or 100 years from now, 
What would you want people to remember about your military and government service career? I think I was able to work with a a lot of great people to accomplish things that have had a long-term effect. Sports medicine uh, fellowship at West Point led to the addition of physical therapies to provide the sports medicine on the battlefield, led to the physical therapists being assigned to Delta and the Rangers and the brigade combat teams. I was effective in bringing together the team to develop the amputee care program that permitted service members to return to active duty and to redeploy with prosthetic devices and to continue in their desired profession. But it was always working with fellow service members and care providers that let me do do the things I did. So couldn't have done it alone. Like everything in the military, you got buddies, you got the people next to you, you got the people around you that build the, the team that I think is kind of unique. A lot of civilian practices, you know, I've gone through a couple and it's like they have a therapist and they do their thing, they have a therapist and they do their thing. It's not that that team. And when you go from one place to another in the military, you still have that team, you have the connections Wherever you move, there's people you've seen before, worked with before. And, and I think that I was effective working within the system, accomplished a lot of good things. Well, we've been speaking with retired Army Medical Specialist Corps Officer Colonel Chuck Scoville. Chuck, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on WarDocs, and thank you for your service to the nation. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of WarDocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.